We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. You can flip over there. Um, and we're going to be um, looking at a, a kind of a, a weird account. Uh, I, I didn't actually draw the short straw on this one. I had the, I had the right straw, and then David finagled it to where I got this one somehow. I don't know how he did it, but he said that I would be able to make this funny. And it's like, this isn't a funny passage at all. So uh, here we go, right? It's Matthew chapter 8, starting in, uh, in verse 28. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus uh, healing a demon-possessed man. Uh, but before we kind of jump into that, just a little context, Matthew is continuing to teach us about the authority of Jesus. And we saw it in the way that Jesus taught people during the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're going to see it in the way that he lives his life. So we see both his walk and his talk combining together to tell us something about who he is. And what is it that they tell us? Well, first they tell us that he has authority over everything. And what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that he is God, because only God has authority over everything. Colossians 1.16 tells us all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and that he is before all things, which is preeminent, and that by him all things hold together. The crowd who heard Jesus preach, they made this statement, they'd never heard anybody preach with this kind of authority, and they marveled at it. And then they got to see what he did after the sermon, which was you know, equally marvelous, if not more. So, so far, just to recap, they've watched Jesus completely heal a man who was filled with leprosy, which told them that Jesus has authority over disease. And then they saw Jesus heal a paralytic, which tells them that Jesus has authority over disability. Then they saw him just tell the winds and the waves what to do, which tells them that he has authority over disaster. And now they're going to see that he has complete authority over demons in what we look at this morning. So disease, disability, disaster, and demons. Those are the categories that scare all of us every day. I mean, you, something will fit into those categories that terrify us all the time. Those are the things right there. You get a scary health diagnosis, and all of a sudden, you, you get worried. You get a call that there's been a, an accident. A tra- you know, fear starts to creep in. I can't even, you know, the disaster thing. I, I worry about trees falling on our house and fires. You know, do you smell smoke? And I don't sleep. I, I can always come up with disasters that come into my life. I'm, I'm good at worrying about those things. And then there's just the evil that surrounds us all the time in our world, in our country, in our town, in our neighborhood, and even in our homes sometimes. These represent the things that we have no control over and that can change our lives in an instant. And because we're, these are completely unpredictable and because we have no authority over them, it makes them absolutely terrifying. And life would be unbearable if that was the reality of our existence But it's not because we have access to one who has authority over those things. One who sees and knows everything before it comes our way. Jesus can heal with a touch. He can remove paralysis with a word. He can calm a storm with a command. And as we're going to see this morning, he can tell evil to leave. And it does. So having Jesus as Lord over our lives makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And, and it means that I don't have to go through life terrified of the unknown or what, of what might happen. And I am the king of what might happen. I can worry about stuff. I mean, just, you know, I'm like a champion of this kind of thing. You can give me any scenario and I'll tell you what could go horribly wrong. I, it's a gift I have. I've had it most of my life. My wife loves it. Um, you know, I'm fun at parties if you guys want to invite me over. I don't know why I do this, but if I really apply myself, I can worry about just about anything. 
And when it comes to Satan and demons and evil, I can really spin out of control because that, that stuff's just terrifying. It's weird stuff. It's always kind of scared me. I don't like horror movies. I don't know how people like these things. I really don't get it at all. I don't like them. I don't like haunted houses. I don't like to be scared. Um, I don't like it when evil triumphs. If I'm watching a movie and good wins out in the end, I can usually deal with it. But if evil triumphs, I, I can't, I don't like it. And there are times in our world when it looks like this is exactly what's happening. It looks like evil is gaining ground, even winning at times. But through passages like the one we're going to look at today, we're going to, we're going to see that, that we can have faith that that isn't the case at all. That's not what's happening. God really is in complete control, and he really is accomplishing his perfect plan through all of it. So we're going to start out in chapter 8, strange passage, as I already told you, starting in verse 28, and it says this, And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gardarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." It's a weird account. It raises all kinds of weird questions. And, and, and in fact, it gets even weirder when you read the other two accounts in Mark and Luke, because they add a lot more information for us to focus in on. And you get a fuller picture. So we're going to look at Mark chapter five, just to get a better context of, of what's going on. And as I read through the beginning of Mark chapter five, I want you to see if you can pick out some of the details that, that are, you know, the extra details that are added. Starting in verse 1 of Mark 5, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For, even, or for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountainside, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you or beg you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, that's when I would have gotten in the boat and just, <laughs> and like, I'm out. That's it for me. Legion, by the way, in case you don't know, means 6,000. Right? That's a big number. This is one of those times when having the pronouns they, them kind of works, right? It's like, <laughs> makes sense here, sir. I know. That was bad. Couldn't help. It's right there. You got to. You got to go. Verse 10, he says, verse 10 says he begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. And Luke's account actually says into the abyss. Verse 11 says, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. So Jesus goes along with the plan. The pigs, not so much. They don't like this plan. 
Verse 13 says, And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. If you're a herdsman, this is a really bad day at work. I mean, can you imagine that? You have to go back to the boss and be like, remember when we started the day and you had 2,000 pigs? Yeah. Yeah, now you don't have any pigs. Bad day. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country and the people came to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been, or the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He wants to go with Jesus. And he said, or, and Jesus did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities in the area, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So in regards to the, the extra details, there's, there's one kind of big elephant in the room that we need to talk about. I don't know if you noticed what it was, but um, Matthew tells us two men came out that were demon possessed, Mark and Luke only mention one man. And this is where people will say, see, look, your Bible is, is full of contradictions. You can't trust what it says because, it, look, it's got stuff like this in it that, that don't work. And, and they'll use things like this. And I would argue that this is not the case at all and that it is easy to explain. First, I will just acknowledge the, the plain and simple fact that the Bible is a book that, where faith is required. We read this book with an element of faith. That's, that, that's needed. It pleases God that we have faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we, it's blind faith. There are plenty of reasons to believe the Bible is real and the Bible is true. It's an amazing book that tells one cohesive story, right? And if you think about 66 authors and over the time that it was spent writing it, for it to be one cohesive story is an amazing thing in and of itself. Look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Look at the archaeological, scientific, and historical stuff that it says that's true. Even stuff that the world used to say, oh, there's no way that's true, until they dug up a city and said, oh, it's all true. This, it, it keeps, you know, we keep catching up with the truth of the Bible. There, there is plenty of reason for us to put our faith in this word of God, and, 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 but it's still required. So the second thing I would point out is that things like one man versus two man in this account, they don't change anything. They don't really, they don't change the overall big story of the Bible. They don't change who Jesus is, what he came to do. It doesn't change our predicament. It doesn't change the story in a significant way. And most of the little discrepancies we find in the Bible are exactly this. None of them alter or contradict the big story. The third thing I would point out is this. These guys had access to each other's writings, right? Luke was a researcher. He, he would have known to read the other guy's stuff, correct? So they had access. If they were trying, you know, if they were making these stories up, they would have taken the time to get their story straight. I don't know if you remember being young at all, and if you were like me, but there were times when I would get in trouble with my friends, and, and step number one was get together and figure out, let's get our story straight, because if you don't get your story straight, when you go to talk to the authority, you're going to get busted really quickly if you all tell a different story. These guys weren't lying. That, Steve's laughing. So you were one of those guys that had to get a story straight. Yeah, you just incriminated yourself, mister. I saw that. Anyway, these guys weren't lying, so they didn't have to get their story straight. It would be kind of like if we saw a car accident out here today and three of us saw it, every one of us would have a different vantage point. And depending on your personality and where you were standing and what you saw, you would probably tell a different account, different details, but they would all be true stories. 
So if somebody's a, a car person, they might focus on what happened to the vehicles. If somebody's a people person, they might focus on what happened to the person. If somebody's squeamish, they might be doing this and not looking much at all. And every story will differ a bit, but it would still be true. So now, the th fourth thing I would point out is this, and I believe this is the actual explanation for what they were actually focusing on. Um, and, and that's the, the, why they were focusing on one individual. It's not really uncommon to do this, is I guess my point. Uh, we do it all the time. And, and for instance, uh, Exhibit A, again, would be Pastor David. If you guys know Pastor David and you know Chad and I, you know Pastor David is a, a slightly bigger personality, uh, a, a bit of a character, maybe one would say. I, I, like I want to use the word flamboyant, but I think if, he won't actually listen to it, so it doesn't matter. But I don't mean in, in that way. But flamboyant, you know how he's that way. So we'll go out to a place like O'Kane's and we'll sit around the, the fire pits and get into conversations with people. And every time it seems to happen this way, people engage with David. At the end of the night when we're leaving, they want to get David's contact information and, and they want to keep in touch with him. If they were to go home that night, they would tell the story and say, man, you wouldn't believe this pastor I met at O'Kane's. And Chad and I are kind of standing there for going, you know, Pastor Chop, this is Pastor Liver. Nice to meet you guys. Like, <laughs> what about us? You know? But it's because he's just such a big personality. And I think that's exactly what is happening in this account. Were there two guys there? Yeah. But one of them was somebody they called Legion. That's who you talk about. I'm not just, I'm not comparing David to Legion. That sounded really weird for a second there. But, but one of them was actually somebody that you would focus in on. And that would be the one that you would notice and talk about. So I think that's all that's happening here. So in verse 28, when it says they got to the other side, that, that's picking up from the, where we left off last week, they'd, they'd gotten out of the boat to get away from the crowds. Jesus just calmed the storm. And, and what we saw is this question the disciples asked when they were in the boat after Jesus calmed the, the storm. They asked this question, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this? And as they're getting out of the boat, making it safely to shore. They're about to get the answer to this question, but probably from a source they didn't think they were going to get it from. Because the demons immediately approach Jesus and correctly identify him, saying, what have you to do with us, O son of God? And Luke's account, they actually call him Jesus, son of the most high God. The disciples were still trying to figure out who this was, but the demons knew exactly who it was. He's Jesus, the son of the most high God. And if we take nothing else from this passage today, this is enough. Because who you say Jesus is matters more than anything else. Because he claimed to be God. He said things like, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you say Jesus is anyone else, you end up with a different Jesus. And you end up with one who is incapable of saving anyone. This is vitally important. If the disciples had any questions about what sort of man this was, they shouldn't any longer. He is God in the flesh. And now there are, of course, other important observations that we can make from this passage. The first one is, is this, and it's not my favorite observation, but it, it's right here for us. Demons are real and they're dangerous. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish they weren't real and I wish they weren't dangerous, but here it is. Uh, what are demons, by the way? They're just, sometimes they're called unclean spirits in the Bible. Um, they're just fallen angels who, along with Satan, chose to rebel against God. They are able to take possession of people, not believers. I don't believe a, a demon can take possession of a believer because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe the Holy Spirit will, will, will share an occupancy with, with the devil. So I don't think we have to worry about being possessed, but, but people can also be oppressed. So those are different things, but I believe Christians can be oppressed. Paul is an example of, of somebody that I believe was oppressed in that way. 
He said that God sent him a messenger of Satan. Messenger is just another word for angel. So like a demon to buffet him or to just torment him. Non-believers, um, I don't know how common it is. I mean, I really don't understand a lot of this stuff. This is what I mean. It brings up a lot of questions. I know they can be possessed because we see it here. I don't know how common it is. And I, and, and I get the sense that you almost have to open a window or a door to allow something like this into your life. Um, and this is why it's a really good idea to avoid, you know, the things that, that might make that possible. So we, we obviously satanic things like witchcraft or sorcery, those kinds of things. We understand why those would be things to stay away from. But the interesting thing is, especially in our day and age right now, the Greek word where we translate witchcraft and sorcery is pharmakia. And we get our word pharmacy from that. And that has to do with drugs. We're living in a time now where drugs have become just this recreational part of life for so many people, including Christians. And I want to just maybe warn you lovingly, anytime you're playing with something that could alter your mind or open a door or a window, be really careful. We just did a podcast about, it's called Say No to Drugs on the One Decent Pastor podcast this week. And we talk about this in, in, in a lot of depth as far as the reasons why we stay away from it. But this is one of them. You're playing with, with fire, in my opinion. And I can tell you firsthand, back when I was a drug user in my teens, before I became a Christian, I, I, was, invi- I, mean, I was literally welcoming evil into my life, or at least to my doorstep. And so we need to be very careful. There are two extremes that people seem to go to regarding Satan and demons. They either make them everything or they make them nothing. And, and in, in C.S. Lewis's famous book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, in the preface, he, he talks about this. If you never read that book, it's a great book. It's like a satirical piece where you've got Screwtape, who's the senior demon, who's teaching Wormwood, the younger demon, basically how to be effective in, in the fight against Christianity and, and, you know, and against God. And in the preface of this book, he says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I find this is what we we do. We have people that just flat out ignore the spiritual realm and act like it's not a thing. And then we have other people who there's a demon under every rock and behind every door. And he's the reason that every, you know, my life is the way it's like they're constantly focused on this. And I would say that those two extremes are both, you know, one gives Satan far too little credit, one far too much credit. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that we have an enemy and that we're to be watchful and sober-minded, knowing that he's like a lion looking for somebody to pick off. Okay, that was a big paraphrase, but, but Jesus says, resist him and be firm in the faith. So we can resist him. And I would just say that if you stay close to the shepherd and if you stay close to the herd, the, the, the flock, you're probably going to be pretty safe, right? When you get away from that, that's where you're in danger. And we see this over and over again. We watch this happen with people that have walked away from the church for long periods of time. You, you wonder, you know, you look at their life and you think, well, how did it get, you don't even see anything that resembles Christianity anymore sometimes. And this, this is why, because this is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to isolate us. I don't know, remember when he said to Jesus, or when, um, when Jesus told Peter, rather, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, I still don't know what that means. If I was Peter, I'd have been like, what exactly, what does that mean? And what are we talking, you know, I want more information, but I couldn't help but think of the book of Job. When you see what, what Satan did to Job, it's probably something along those lines. That's what he wants to do to you and I. And we see this here in this, in this man that they call Legion. We see what Satan would do to all of us if he could. He hates God and he wants us to hate God too. You know, there's no redemption for angels. If, if, if a demon falls or an angel falls, there's no redemption for them. 
Their fate is sealed. So they've got nothing more to lose and nothing better to do but then to try to turn people away from God. And we get kind of an up-close and personal look at this with this man, Legion. This guy even wanted to end his own life because of the torment that he was experiencing. Did you, did you notice that? It says night and day, he would cry and cut himself with stones. And when you think about suicide rates today, it makes you wonder, is this, is this largely brought on by demonic influence, by, by the enemy who wants to convince people that they have no worth and no hope? It's a brilliant plan, right? I mean, the pigs kind of confirm this, by the way. It's interesting to think the minute the demons went into the pigs, what did they want to do? They wanted to rush to their death. That was their natural instinct. They wanted to check out. And we know that Satan doesn't want anybody to save, anyone to be saved. And so if he, can, if he can have people take themselves out before they, they get a chance to meet Jesus, I mean, I know that we're, I'm thinking on human terms, not in sovereign terms here. So, so um, I think this is something that, you know, we just need to be mindful of. John 10, 10, Jesus tells us this about Satan, that he is a thief who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take you away from God. But then Jesus says this, and this is the best part of that verse, but I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Satan is the destroyer, but Jesus is the deliverer. So even though there is a real enemy, we do not have to lose heart. We do not have to live in fear because of what it says in 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you, Christian, is greater than he who is in the world. Is that not good news? If Christ is in you, you have nothing to be afraid of. If Christ is in you, you are safe and secure from all alarm, as the hymn says, because Jesus is greater. And according to 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in simple terms, if you just want it, like my God can beat up your God. That's what this is saying right here. And I like that. And this is made clear through our next observation, and that's this. Demons are afraid of Jesus. Did you notice how Legion responded when he saw Jesus? He said, when he saw him from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And you could say, what, is this some kind of an act of worship? No, it's an act of submission. He knows who's boss and he gets down before him because they're worried. You know, he, he's saying they're afraid that, have you come before the time? Are you going to throw us into the abyss right now? They're worried about this. They know that he can do whatever he wants. So they beg. Many of us are afraid of demonic things, but demonic things are afraid of Jesus and he's on our team. I want you to think about like the potential matchup here. If you were to have uh, Jesus versus Legion kind of in, in the ring, you know, what would the, the Vegas odds be on a fight like this? Uh, as I already pointed out, Legion means 6,000. Now demons lie, so we don't know exactly how many we had here, but it was a big number, right? We know there were 2,000 pigs, so enough to fill 2,000 pigs. Pretty large number. I'm just telling you right now, I wouldn't go up against one demon in any kind of fight ever. That terrifies me. So we have a, a you know, several thousand powerful, terrifying demons against one Jesus. How hard was it for Jesus to defeat these guys? A word. One word. Go. That's a pretty easy day of work, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty easy fight, I would say. And I couldn't help but think of the, the, the fantastic hymn by, by Luther, um, a mighty fortress. It says this, and it's old language, but, but work with me here. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Go. That's just awesome. One word. And I love it in 2 Thessalonians 2. It talks about the lawless one who's going to come and be revealed. And it says, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. It's the same idea, the sword of his mouth. He's just going, it doesn't take him any effort at all to do this. And this means that Jesus has complete authority over all the forces of evil. And I can't emphasize this enough because I'm watching Christians freaking out, going into the deep web and looking into the Illuminati and QAnon and all these things. And, and, and basically, it's funny to me in, in the sense, not funny, haha, but if, if screw tape, if this was a real thing, I could see him saying Wormwood, hey, get him to focus on this stuff. Get him to focus on this evil and trip out on that. It'll distract him from ever preaching the good news and the hope of the gospel. We don't need to worry about this because when God decides to rid the world of evil, he will do it with swiftness and ease without breaking his sweat. Go. And this brings us to our next observation, which I'll admit is a hard one. So brace yourself for impact. Satan is not able to do anything in this world or anything in your life apart from the sovereign permission of God. The demons needed permission to do what they wanted to do. In this passage, and if you're not familiar with the book of Job, you'll see the exact same thing there. They, he could do nothing he wanted to do unless God gave him the okay. Now this truth comes with implications, does it not? Some of you will be comforted by what I just said, and some of you will be confounded by what I just said. The truth this truth is a great comfort when, when your life is good and things are going well. It's like, yes, this is a great truth. But when your life's not going well, this sounds pretty strange. And this is why people, including Christians, come up with, with alternatives to try to give them comfort. And so that it's, it's kind of like they, they pretend like God and Satan are two equal rivals, that they're, in the, they're engaged in this cosmic battle of good and evil. And on one day, God might get the upper hand and win the battle. And on another day, Satan might get the upper hand and win the battle. And that's what's going on in your life. When you have a good day, God won that day. And when you have a bad day, oh, Satan won that day. That's kind of what we tend to think sometimes and believe. And I understand why people want to believe this way, but I would argue that the implications of that belief are far worse than the implications of being that God is in complete control. Because if that belief is true, God can be beaten on any given day. And what if he gets beaten on the last day, Christian? Does that give you comfort? No, that's the most terrifying thought you could have. Either God is in control or he's not. It's as simple as that. But the good news is, even in spite of the implications, God is in control. God cannot be beaten. His plan cannot be thwarted. He doesn't have any bad days. He doesn't have any chinks in his armor. He doesn't have any weak spots. He doesn't have any worthy adversaries. None. Yes, that makes certain things that come our way hard to understand, but it's nowhere near as bad as, as the alternative. And of course, this is where faith must come in. And this is where a verse like Romans 8.28, if this isn't a fridge verse for you, it, it ought to be. It, it's, it's like a comforter that you can just warm up in when you need to from time to time, because it says this, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this, this does not mean that all things will always be good. It's not what that verse says. 
It means that for the believer, for the one who has been called by God to salvation, both the good things and the bad things that come into our life are working together to accomplish God's good will and purpose in our life. So it's, we, we can say that it's good. And you can say, well, how is that possible? How can God do that? And again, I would, I would give you exhibit A, the cross. It seems like we come here every week because it's the best thing we can, we can dwell on and look at. The cross, I would argue, is the worst thing that's ever happened in humanity. In the, from the beginning of time to the end, the cross is the... Because the God who created everything and everyone was stripped, beaten, spit on, humiliated, nailed to a cross for sins he didn't commit, and murdered. Hands down, the most terrible and tragic thing the world has ever seen. Satan got what he wanted that day. Evil men rejoiced to see their plan accomplished, and Jesus stopped. And it looked like a day when evil completely triumphed. But is that what happened? No, not even remotely. God was in complete control using their evil for good and to accomplish his plan. Just like he did in the life of Joseph. You remember that? They meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. What came out of the most tragic event in human history? Satan sealed his fate that day. Unknowingly, but he sealed his fate that his head was crushed. Sin and death were also conquered that day. God was glorified through the resurrection of the dead and eternal salvation was secured for everyone who believes. That's a pretty good day, right? Most tragic day, best day. That's what, that's what God can do. So the next time you begin to wonder what God is up to and why things aren't going the way you think they should or it looks like evil is triumphing, just spend some time on your knees at the cross in awe of who God is and how he works and what he's done, knowing that, that he can make the best out of the most horrible circumstances and that he is at work. So, so instead of freaking out, worrying, thinking about what might be, trust him and praise his name. The next observation we see is that Jesus can transform anyone because I think it's safe to say nobody was holding out hope for this guy they called Legion. Everyone had given up on him and they thought the world would just be a better place without him. As far uh, gone as he was, was he too far for, for Jesus to save? No. And that means none of us are. I mean, this guy's probably like the poster child for the hardest guy in the world to save in some ways. It's just... Jesus broke those chains. It's funny to think that they used to chain this, this guy and, they, and the chains couldn't hold him. But spiritually, he was shackled and chained and, and, and nothing could change that. But Jesus could. Jesus broke these chains and set this man free. And you can't help but think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this is, again, the contrast that we see in this man. And and, and what that would have said to the people that knew him and saw him would have been remarkable. He was naked. Now he's clothed. He was so defiant. And now he's just, he's, he's bowed like a harmless little, you know, puppy in front of Jesus, humbly submitted to him. He was violent and self-destructive, and now he's just harmless and at peace. And he was opposed to God, and now he wants to follow him. Isn't that cool? And this is the power of Christ transforming us, the power of him in our lives. No one is beyond the powerful reach of God. His arm is never too short to save anyone, and that should give us hope. The other observation we can see in this is, is the value of human life. You know, we talked about the elephant in the room, and now we get to talk about the pigs. We need to address the pigs. 2,000 pigs dying 
is a really tragic loss. And, and as, as we, you know, the animal rights move, I don't know what kind of reaction there was when this story was written back in, you know, in Matthew, if, if people were freaking out about the pigs. But nowadays, people freak out about animals a lot. So we've got to talk about it. To the Jew, we know that the pig was an unclean animal. They didn't eat it. They didn't like him. So probably not a, a tragic loss. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting to think about is this miracle wouldn't have been near the magnitude visually if he didn't have the pigs in this story. So if you just have the man come up and Jesus says, go, and all of a sudden the guy goes, ah, you know, I got better. You know, it's like you wouldn't see anything, you know, to see the pigs do this and run off. All this, it elevates this, this miracle to something that is pretty amazing. And then there's also the ironic thing about the, about the pigs. You know, pigs won't reject anything. If you've ever been around pigs, they won't reject anything. But they rejected these guys. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, they were unwilling to, to host an unclean spirit. So there's a lot here that's pretty magnificent, but the fact remains, you know, a lot of animals died that day. And we're living in a time when the status and the worth of animals has been elevated above humans. And an argument can be made that sometimes animals, even pigs, are, you know, more well-behaved than some humans and, and, you know, nicer. But that doesn't change the fact that humans are made in the image of God and precious to him. And I think as stewards of God's creation, we need to, to make sure we, we, we care for animals and be kind to them, but we need to keep them in a proper perspective. Jesus saw more value in one human soul, even someone as far gone as him, than he did in the 2,000 pigs that, that perished that day. And, and it makes me, you know, we have to ask the question, what do we value more? Because the townspeople are about to get pretty upset about this whole thing. People, possessions. This is kind of what it came down to, and, and maybe even you know, the animal world falls into that, that, that same thing. What, what do we invest in more? What do we care more about? In his commentary in, in Matthew, uh, Dan Doriani writes this about learning the lesson of the pigs. And he says, there are people who don't want toddlers to enter their homes because they don't want them to drool on the table or touch the antiques. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. There are people who will not spend their money or use their property to meet human needs because they are afraid of depleting their assets. They have not learned the lesson of the pigs. People are more important than possessions. We need to learn this. We need to learn the lesson of the pigs and prioritize things around us accordingly because there are people right now that are literally rushing to the cliff to their own eternal demise. And, and we're worried about things that have no eternal value or significance at all. And we're placing priority on those things as opposed to the people in our lives that, that don't know Christ. As I said already, the people in the town that came out, it's kind of shocking to see their response. They should have been in awe of Jesus at this point. They should have seen, we knew what this man was. We saw what you did. We can't believe who you are. They should have known God was in their midst. They should have been rejoicing over a soul that was rescued. They should have bowed before Jesus seeing this transformation. But instead, what did they want him to do? leave. Not crazy. Two times begging is mentioned in this account. One, it's the demons begging Jesus to, to, you know, don't, don't cast us into the abyss, cast us into the pigs. The other time it's the people saying, Jesus, please just leave us alone. Get out of our region. It's amazing. They want nothing to do with him. Just get out of our lives as soon as possible. And sadly, this is the truth still for people today. Well, the last thing we see in this is, is that Jesus commissioned this man now to go and testify of what had happened, what have happened, what's happened. Um, once the man was restored, all he wanted to do is devote himself to following Jesus. And, and, and he wanted to go with Jesus, which is kind of how, wouldn't we do the same thing? It's like, where you go, I'm going. From this point on, I'm right next to your side. But Jesus says, no, 
That's not, that's not the plan. He tells them that he can't come with them, and instead he wants them to go back to his family and his friends to testify about what happened to him. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, how he has had mercy on you. That's what he wants them to do. Can you imagine the impact that testimony would have from anybody that knew this man? And the question is, has he called us to do the same thing? He has. He's told us to do the the very same thing. Go to your family and your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy in your life. It's the great commission. This is what we're all called to do. And we don't know how they're going to respond. They might respond like the townspeople and say, leave my region, you know, get away from me. I don't want to hear it. But they might, they might fall on their knees and ask for Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And if they don't respond favorably, keep loving them, keep praying for them, and keep Jesus at the forefront of your life. Because a transformed life is a powerful, powerful witness. So these accounts are super precious to me. They, they show us that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he has complete authority over everything including all the stuff that causes me to fear. And they give us a glimpse of what's to come for those who place their trust in Jesus for salvation, a kingdom where evil will be rid of completely forever. At some point, Jesus is going to say, go, and it's all going to stop. And I can't wait for that day. Father, thank you so much that uh, there is no one like you. You are uh, awe-inspiring, amazing, and thank you that you can transform any life you can save any soul. Your arm is not too short to save. We thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming for sinners, Lord. Thank you for the price that Christ paid on the cross to secure our salvation. Lord, I I just pray that each one of us would take this message of hope to the people around us, to, to tell people what the Lord has done in our lives and how he's had mercy on us, that others might come as well. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.